I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And we're coming to you tonight from Georgetown University Law Center here in beautiful Washington, D.C., uh, with almost a view of the Capitol. I'm sitting here in this great room with these phenomenal Georgetown Law students. They invited us to do We the People when a few months ago at Berkeley, I issued a call saying, Law Students of America, invite We the People to come live and broadcast from your law schools. And the phenomenal Georgetown American Constitution Society and Federalist Society chairs invited us, and here we are to discuss an incredibly important topic, namely the future of federalism. Now the Democrats have lost control of both the White House and Congress. Some progressives are rediscovering the virtues of what some call progressive federalism in their attempts to resist President Trump. And now that Republicans have finally regained unified control, some principled uh, conservatives remain steadfast in their devotion to states' rights, whereas others are downplaying federalism in an effort to advance a national agenda. So to tease out these incredibly important constitutional issues, we have a dream team of federalism, both selected by the Georgetown chapters of the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society. Josh Blackman, our returning champion, is an associate professor of law at the South Texas College of Law in Houston, who specializes in constitutional law, the Supreme Court, and the intersection of law and technology. And I'm so pleased and honored to welcome to the podcast Peter Edelman, the Mark Waterhouse Professor of Law and Public Policy here at the Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches constitutional law and poverty law, faculty director of the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality, and a former chair of the American Constitution Society. Josh, Peter, thank you so much for joining. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Let's jump right into the question of sanctuary cities. The Department of Homeland Security has recently issued new orders about immigration enforcement, and some states like California have announced their desire to become the new Texas, as Josh Blackman uh, calls them, and rely on principles of federalism to resist incursions from the Trump administration into their sanctuary cities. Josh, I want you to start us right off. You wrote a great piece in National Review and a piece on your blog, How States Can Help Trump Make Federalism Great Again. I want you to describe what the constitutional issues are raised by efforts by the federal government to withhold funding from federal sanctuary cities, uh, including questions involving uh, anti-commandeering, uh, uh, the uh, conditional uh, use of funds, and any other legal issues that you think are raised. Thank you, Jeff, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, there are two primary issues involved in the so-called sanctuary cities, which I agree is a term that doesn't have a fixed meaning. But at a minimum, a sanctuary city is a jurisdiction that will not cooperate with the federal government with respect to immigration enforcement. The first issue is what's called commandeering. In the 1990s, there was a case called Prince versus United States. And this case concerned whether the federal government could require local law enforcement officials to run background checks on gun purchases. And the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision said, no, they cannot. The states, I'm sorry, the federal government cannot commandeer individual local law enforcement officers. Uh, notably, this was a 5-4 decision. There were four dissenting opinions. Uh, uh, the dissent said this commandeering principle doesn't exist 
Indeed, Justice Stevens wrote a book proposing an amendment to the U.S. Constitution saying we should eliminate commandeering altogether. But now it is the beauty of the left because San Francisco says you can't tell us to enforce federal immigration laws. You know what? San Francisco is right. So what can be done instead of commandeering? This is the next doctrine called the spending clause. Um, generally, because Congress can't make states do stuff, they can say, hey, states, if you want money, we'll give you money, but you have to do what we want. And a case called South Dakota v. Dole involved an effort by Congress to ask states to raise their drinking age to 21. South Dakota refused. Congress said, okay, that's fine. We will withhold 0.5% of your highway federal funding. They went to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court held that that's, uh, that's fine. It's just a small amount of money. There's not much pressure. But then came the Obamacare case, NFIB versus Sibelius. In that case, the Obama administration threatened to withhold from states roughly 15 to 20 percent of their state budgets in the form of Medicaid funding. Uh, the Supreme Court, by a vote of 7 to 2, not 5-4, 7-2, said that was unconstitutional. Uh, I will also note that California and other states which now avail themselves of this principle filed briefs against the spending clause in the Obamacare decision. Everyone's on the other side of the issue. And so the question is, what amount of money will be withheld, and where does it fall along the spectrum from Dole to NFIB versus Sibelius? And that will decide whether the amount withheld is indeed coercive and a violation of the spending clause. Beautiful. Thank you for setting us up so well. Peter, what do you make of both the anti-commandeering arguments and the spending clause arguments that California is raising to resist incursions by the Trump administration? And are progressives embracing these arguments at their peril since, in some cases, they previously resisted them? Well, Jeff, first of all, uh, I'm a little amused at, at the uh, premise that, that says uh, the, the liberals have decided to be on the other side of federalism. Um, first of all, what, at some point uh, in, in the conversation, we need to have a, a, a larger contextual uh, conversation about federalism. Uh, it, it's a fundamental uh, aspect of the structure of, of the government uh, in the United States, and uh, it's, it is, with, with speaking at a kind of 50,000-foot level, it's, it's a really uh, a genius of a creation, particularly as this country got bigger, bigger, and bigger. And uh, so uh, Justice Kennedy uh, said, uh, in, in uh, U.S. term limits uh, against Thornton, uh, that uh, what federalism has meant for us is that it split the atom of sovereignty. Uh, so it, that's, that's the frame here. We, we believe very strongly uh, in, in a system which, which divides uh, ver vertically um, the responsibility of, of governance uh, in, in our uh, country. Uh, and so uh, I hope we'll have time in, in the conversation uh, to talk about the broader questions. Uh, the history uh, is very, very tied to race and the history of race in our country. Uh, uh, many times we have, have uh, times where, where uh, the really uh, issues that were involved uh, might have had rhetoric that sounded uh, very high meaning uh, when in fact it was really about things that were uh, deeply disturbing uh, in our country. So maybe we can come back to all of that. But I say that because uh, the, in, in this narrower, very, very important, but, but a narrower discussion of federalism, um, 
And just because uh, we're also lawyers as well as uh, academics, uh, if the uh, law and, and the, the uh, interpretations of the Constitution put before us these uh, particular items and other will, that we'll talk about, uh, where the liberal finds himself or herself uh, uh, on the side of, of defending uh, the state and local people in our country, well, so be it. Uh, and indeed, in a broader sense, we want uh, that uh, assignment, that division of, of, uh, of uh, responsibilities. Uh, and so uh, in terms of, of where you started, and just to say that uh, I think that the question, these two points, uh, the question of commandeering um, is, uh, it seems uh, to me that, that uh, it Cre creates a very strong argument for San Francisco and the rest of the country uh, to be uh, told uh, by the national government that it uh, must do uh, this or that in, in terms of uh, using the Prince case as, as uh, the, the, the key uh, precedent. Uh, the, and uh, the being as, as there are, as you indicated, m many different uh, aspects to so-called sanctuary uh, uh, juris jurisdictions, um, there, there's going to be a lot of argument about the application of it. But uh, I think that's a strong argument. And uh, in terms of, of the spending power, um, and let me say that on the Tenth Amendment, the Tenth Amendment essentially died. Uh, in about 1941 with Derby. Uh, and so uh, the fact that it has it had a comeback with New York against the United States and then Prince uh, are shows, it shows you how we kind of go back and forth. As far as the spending power, uh, I will just say, uh, because I think I've had enough of a, of a turn for now, uh, that this is much more like uh, what, would, what would be uh, at the the uh, federal government would be saying you must do X, Y, and Z about uh, uh, police power and other things that happen uh, in your city in order to get uh, various kinds of money that have absolutely nothing to do with it. Uh, and so the concept of, of relatedness and, and also the word coercion comes into mind. Um, I think this is much, much uh, closer to, uh, to uh, Sibelius um, than it is South Dakota. Um, the very point about the 5%, that, that's, that's uh, nickels and dimes. And we're, we're talking here uh, about something I certainly do disagree with what uh, the court did with in, in uh, Sibelius, uh, but it's helpful in this, in this context. Great, so the debate is well joined. And Josh, Peter says, first of all, that the Tenth Amendment died with Darby. Remember, that's the New Deal era case that seemed to stop a rigorous enforcement of federal state relations. I heard Justice Scalia in one of his last appearances in Philadelphia also say federalism and the Tenth Amendment are dead. And he said that it was the 17th Amendment with the direct election of senators that killed federalism. But we're seeing a resurgence of it. And Josh, Peter says that when it comes to sanctuary cities, he agrees that threats to withhold federal funds might be coercive. The test there, Chief Justice Roberts says, have the feds put a gun to the head of the states? And then your 
not sure about whether enough federal money is being threatened to be withheld to meet the test of the Affordable Care Act case or not. And Josh, you've said that the court has to decide exactly what point uh, the spending becomes coercive. Um, I want you now to engage the argument against California's position. What about the claim that here the states are merely being asked to turn over information rather than to do anything involuntarily because they have to sign memorandums of, um, of understanding saying they agree to carry out enforcement laws and the court in the Reno driving uh, privacy case said states can be required to turn over information because that's not coercive. So a statute which you'll become very familiar with is called Section 1373, which concerns whether states have, I'm sorry, whether states can enact a law that prohibits turning over information to the federal government. And indeed, there's a very big question of whether providing information to the feds amounts to commandeering. Um, the statute in question specifically says states have to do this. Okay, obviously Congress can't make states do this, but then becomes the question of what is the penalty for failing to comply. There was an article in the New York Times about a month ago where the New York City Comptroller General said that if New York fails to comply, they'll lose about 1% of their annual budget. I think the number was $8 billion, and they have like, you know, a, or maybe it was $800 million, which sounds like a lot, but they have like an $80 billion budget. Um, in terms of germaneness and relatedness, um, there hasn't been much teeth put in that. Um, but if the court wants to put teeth in that, I'm with Peter. Uh, if we get a 9-0 opinion from Justice Sotomayor reaffirming the supremacy of the spending clause, I will take that to the bank. And you can be certain the minute we have that precedent, Texas will file suit under the Clean Water Act. And Arkansas will file suit under the Clean Air Act. Right? There, there, there's a consequence. These are not one-way tickets. If you start striking down this, a lot of other federal programs are now at risk. And I will go along with that. I believe in federalism fair, you know, through thick and thin. And I think these principles are important. And there are a lot of aspects of federal conditional spending that become at risk if San Francisco wins its suit. Great. So Peter, Josh says he wants to be a consistent federalist. He's supporting California's case, but he would also invoke the same principles to support challenges against clean water and clean power rules. Tell us about how those environmental challenges might pan out and should I'm, liberals I'm not, embrace I'm, them. I don't understand the point that, that uh, states would lose uh, money under clean water and clean air um, for having done what? Is it in relation to sanctuary cities still? Josh, why don't you set out the argument uh, on the environmental side and how these federalism challenges might play out, and then Peter can respond. I'd be happy to. Um, in many aspects of our federal government, um, Congress does not require the states to take certain actions. Instead, they hand over certain amounts of money to encourage them to do so. Um, states have been accepting this money for some time. The amount of money being provided is potentially less than that at issue in the sanctuary cities cases. If the court pushes the line forward and expands the sort of payments that become coercive in various schemes involving environmental law, uh, 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 communication law, welfare law, health law, where money is being spent, then other states can raise coercion challenges to that. Um, what I'm trying to get at is this is not a one-off precedent. This sort of decision that San Francisco and other states are pushing will have collateral consequences. And while I'm sure it's possible to distinguish away these rules, 
uh, these are precedents that the court will have to grapple with before they go ahead and, and, and make some teeth in the spending clause. These are teeth I'd appreciate. I don't want these teeth extracted later once it becomes a pain to the left, right? I want these teeth to remain. So if we get these victories, I will gladly take them. Great. So I guess, Peter, the question is, might uh, in areas from welfare to the environment, might these spending clause victories come back to haunt liberals in the future? The, the basic point here uh, is, uh, and, and it's gotten more teeth because of Sibelius, uh, is whether, and these, these are overlapping ideas of coercion and relatedness, um, because uh, the more unrelated it is, the more it feels coercive. So they, they relate to each other. Um, we have a long-standing, long-standing set of, of uh, programs where the, the, uh, what the, the federal government asks of the state is to do A, B, and C that is clearly related to uh, what they're being asked to do uh, in return for the money that they get. Um, and so uh, I, I don't, I, I just have to say that I, I would have to see the facts of the particular uh, case uh, before I could really respond uh, about it. Um, we know from, uh, as far as, as uh, the, the something where, where you're talking about uh, uh, doing something uh, in, in like New York versus the United States, uh, where you're simply told to do something, the uh, court hold held that you can't do that. Um, so, insofar as there is in some other uh, thing uh, by analogous uh, but anal analysis to uh, what happened to to the Medicaid program. Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen it. Um, the, but there is uh, an immense number of programs which have uh, conditions to get the money. I mean, uh, sometimes we have block grants, and that's another conversation that we ought to have about uh, federalism because uh, we're, we're up to seeing the, the very strong possibility of taking block grant, taking Medicaid, and, and a number of other programs uh, in the absolutely other direction and saying uh, uh, what we're about to propose, what we're about to see, whether it's Medicaid, whether it's food stamps, whether it's a long list of things, uh, you get the money from the feds as a freebie. Now, there's a lot of other things that happen as a result of that. That is a danger about which I am very, very seriously uh, worried. Uh, Insofar, I know a fair amount about some of the programs, and uh, nobody's ever suggested, and no, nor do I think that there's anything in the construct of those programs that suggests that uh, someone should say that uh, Sibelius applies and therefore makes those other programs unconstitutional. Uh, maybe there's something I haven't heard, but as a general principle, I don't see anything coming down the road in that regard. Uh, that opens up uh, further litigation using the spending clause. Great. Well, let us then turn to another concrete issue, and that is medical marijuana. On Election Day, uh, there were several new states that legalized recreational use of medical marijuana for adults. In the 2016 election, voters in Arkansas, Florida, Montana, and North Dakota expanded medical marijuana use 
um, as of 2015, at least 23 states in D.C. allow for medical marijuana use. These may now face challenges under federal preemption and the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, Josh, there was a case in 20, uh, 2005 called Gonzalez and Raich, where the Supreme Court held that the Controlled Substances Act was constitutional and preempted a California law legalizing medical marijuana. There was a vigorous dissenting opinion by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who cited my hero, Justice Louis Brandeis, a great fan, a great hero of the We the People podcast, who talked about the fact that a single courageous state may, if its citizens choose, serve as a laboratory and try novel social and economic experiments without risk to the rest of the country. Josh, tell us what Gonzalez and Ray says, what the state of the law is for federal preemption of these state initiatives, and whether the state initiatives might survive and what a future Supreme Court might do on Gonzalez and Raich. So Gonzalez and Raich considered the question of whether the federal government can regulate locally cultivated marijuana. And this was a six to three decision. Uh, The majority opinion by Justice Stevens for five justices said that cultivating local marijuana was an economic activity. And under the principle articulated in Wickard versus Filburn, a economic activity that has a substantial effect on interstate commerce can be regulated even if that activity is wholly intrastate. Uh, Justice Scalia wrote a concurring opinion, which was much more uh, uh, engaging, saying that even if it's not an economic activity, the fact remains that Congress has the power to regulate an interstate drug market, and as a necessary and proper means of doing so, they can reach the locally cultivated marijuana. Um, So as a consequence of that, the court held that the feds can prosecute people uh, 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 for uh, marijuana, even if it's locally grown. The issue of marijuana, uh, uh, legalization of marijuana, both medical and otherwise, um, is this weird black hole of the law. Why? In recent years, both Colorado and Washington state uh, enacted laws legalizing marijuana, period. You can go to a store and buy a pot, and, and there's, no, there's no license needed. Um, um, so the students that are smiling right now, I wouldn't recommend it if you come back here because it remains a violation of federal law. Um, the Obama administration issued a letter called the Cole Memorandum, and this memo basically said, yeah, we got lots of stuff to do. We're pretty busy, so we're not going to prosecute these crimes in these states. Um, I've argued at some length that I think this policy was a violation of the president's take care duties, actually announced prospectively that they will not announce an entire aspect of law, not merely to change prioritization, but to say we will not enforce this. Um, this is extremely problematic. And when the rubber meets the road, say you decide to open up a marijuana dispensary, hello, Jeff Sessions. That's your new attorney general who does not need to leave that memo in place. And by the way, the statute of limitations has not yet run yet. Oh, and if you're a financial institution and you've dealt business with a marijuana dispensary, good luck getting any licenses from a federal agency. So there's a serious risk when one president decides simply not to enforce aspects of the law and the next president says, I will, because that puts people in a very tough spot. Uh, uh, but, But the fact remains you have a duty to enforce law and you cannot announce prospectively that you won't enforce it. Peter, uh, first, Gonzalez and Raich. It was argued by your Georgetown colleague, Randy Barnett. Mm -hmm. He lost it. He thought it was a big defeat for federalism. Might it come out the other way on a Gorsuch court? Uh, Justice O'Connor has been replaced by Justice Alito. uh, Neil Gorsuch is a fierce uh, defender of federalism and a Jeffersonian. So might Gonzalez and Raich be reversed? And more broadly, should liberals support the ability of states to resist uh, marijuana law enforcement under the Controlled Substances Act, or could that lead to mischief down the line? Well, uh, talking ab- uh, about preemption, uh, as we do with that case, uh, 
the, what we need to ask is, uh, is, is there an express preemption, which there is not on this. Uh, secondly, uh, is there, there uh, a, a, uh, a collision? Uh, and and a, a third, uh, a, a, a detecting a purpose. Um, so Gonzales is an application of the second uh, pr principle. Um, I uh, think there is a, uh, a difference uh, between, and, and the, I'm, not, I'm sort of playing with the facts a little bit, but, but in terms of thinking about preemption, insofar as we'd be talking about medical marijuana, I think there's a, a reasonable uh, argument that says uh, that it's for a different purpose, therefore it doesn't collide with, uh, with uh, the federal law. Um, it's very hard to, uh, if you're talking about uh, an overall legalization uh, of marijuana, given what the federal law uh, provides, uh, I find it difficult, as much as my heart would be someplace else, uh, to uh, say that, that that is not preemption. Um, the uh, one of the things that there, there's a lot of things that are on the absolutely about to happen, or the effort will be made to, to help them, which are are uh, major major change in in uh, federal policy. Uh, so this is just one, uh, and. Uh, I'd, I would question uh, the idea that when, as a matter of, of uh, the, the prosecutorial discretion about who is going to be uh, prosecuted uh, for violating the federal marijuana laws, that the, that the president is violating the take care clause when uh, the, the, the point is to say that this is an area of the law which we will, where we will simply not prosecute. I think that's within the discretion that, that the prosecutor has. But uh, when another uh, president comes along and another attorney general comes along with a different view, it's certainly true that they can change that policy. And so that's, that's what Josh is talking about, and we will see what happens. Fascinating. So there I hear you both uh, resisting to some degree uh, federalism challenges to the medical uh, marijuana um, restrictions by the federal government. But Josh, you have now put Gonzalez and Raish on the table, and I want to ask you, is lurking in your embrace of federalism the potential of a fundamental challenge to the post-New Deal administrative state? Randy Barnett and a series of great National Constitution Center programs, and in his excellent new book, The Republican Constitution, says that the Wickard and Filburn case, which Peter mentioned, which said that a farmer growing wheat in his backyard had enough of an effect on interstate commerce to be regulated by the federal government. Uh, Randy Barnett says that was wrong. He says Rand, uh, Gonzalez and Raich was wrong and should be overturned. If you had your way, Josh, would a, a whole series of aspects of the federal regulatory state be unconstitutional? Uh, Randy, who, uh, full, for full disclosure, I'm a co-author of his constitutional law casebook, so I'm, I'm somewhat in the tank for his theory. Uh, Randy has described the New Deal in these terms, this far but no farther. And he says that the Rehnquist and Roberts courts have implicitly adopted that theory. In other words, they're not going after Wickard, they're not going after Darby, but they're not going to push it any further. 
And what happened in the Obamacare case wasn't a mere application of the New Deal precedents. Rather, what we saw was an effort to go past the New Deal precedents. Not only was Congress trying to regulate an economic activity, but to push people into the stream of commerce. And once they engage in an economic activity by purchasing, it, by purchasing insurance, at that point, they could be regulated with the full blunt of the federal power. Um, so in many respects, the Obamacare case was this far and no further. Uh, what Randy wrote about Rach was this was more or less an application of Wickard. And the court was not willing to revisit Wickard. I think there are probably grounds for distinguishing Wickard um, and Rach. For one, Farmer Filburn was actually engaged in an economic activity of farming, whereas uh, Angel Rach was engaging in zero commercial transaction. No money was being changed hands. There are distinctions, uh, but the court wasn't buying them. Um, in terms of the ongoing vitality of the New Deal, I'll answer your question this way. Um, there's a reason why we still have to debate this. Um, if I tell any of your parents who aren't lawyers about Wickard v. Filburn that Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce, but they can regulate a farmer growing wheat on his farm that never leaves Ohio, they laugh because it doesn't make any sense. As much as I love Justice Jackson, his opinion, Wickard, is a, is a farce. It, it was driven to validate the New Deal. Um, that's why it was written. So when you have an opinion that people still ridicule as being an insane opinion, but we have to rely on it, means we still debate it. And so long as people debate an opinion, it's not chiseled in stone. There's some cases that we don't debate anymore. We're debating Wickard for a reason. Peter, are liberals playing with fire by embracing a kind of progressive federalism that might put on the table the question of whether uh, Wickard should be overturned and whether the size of the federal government should be fundamentally shrunk? Or now that liberals are concerned about the federal government under President Trump and a Republican Congress, is this a price that they should be willing to pay? I think our parents uh, have some questions about a lot of things we talk about in law school. Uh, so, uh, and uh, the, the, the larger point is that we became uh, a nation uh, where uh, commerce uh, reaches into uh, many, many aspects of, of our life and, and as a fact pattern, that's become uh, something that people can talk about. I don't think uh, that that, uh, that that liberals are looking around for trying to do something to Wickard versus uh, Filburn. In fact, uh, what was done uh, as as dictum, which was extremely unfortunate uh, in Sibelius, totally unnecessary. Once they had found that the found the the tax uh, basis for for upholding the Affordable Care Act. And this was just uh, having a little extra fun, uh, which was very, very significant. Uh, it was uh, made out of whole cloth. Uh, nobody had ever come up with an idea like that. Uh, and uh, it, it, in terms of uh, explaining uh, the, the connection to, to uh, uh, commerce uh, in terms of a person who uh, doesn't have health care and, and otherwise would not get health care, uh, and as a result of the way the, the statute was created, uh, it would bring in it would it would be necessary to bring in for for the whole program to be successful. So uh, I am I could not disagree more with that that what was done uh, in that case. I think it was extremely uh, un, unfortunate. Just as the decision, the aspect of the de decision about the, what it did with the spending power. 
uh, wholly apart from what, how that can be used now. It's a tool that I wish we didn't have, um, but we have it and we should use it. Uh, good. So, Josh, you hear Peter uh, resisting uh, the parts of the Affordable Care Act case that you are embracing. I want to ask you descriptively, um, the, the, this podcast began by the claim that we have some fair-weather federalists on both sides, that basically some conservatives embraced federalism when it served their purposes and not otherwise, and it's the same for liberals. Uh, I, I'll uh, give you the compliment of saying you're a principled federalist because you're saying that California should win for the sanctuary cities, but that also these principles should be used to resist regulation. Um, and on uh, the other side, I would Heather Gherkin of Yale Law School. Who Dean Gherkin. Dean, yes, congratulations to, to Professor Gherkin for being appointed the new dean of Yale Law School. So thrilled by her appointment. she You can find her on the Interactive Constitution and on our great podcast. And she is, as well as being the dean of Yale Law School, uh, designate, she's the dean of what's called progressive federalism and has championed the use of states' rights for liberals. Describe conservatives and liberals on both sides of this debate who you believe are consistent. Oh, well, I don't like naming naming names. It's not a not a thing I appreciate doing. Um, but what I found in my fairly brief time in this field is that when people lose elections, they turn to the Constitution. Um, when Republicans lost the election in 2008, the Tea Party turned to the Constitution to oppose Obamacare. When Democrats lost the election in 2016, they turned to the Constitution to oppose Trump's immigration policies. Um, going all the way back to Susan B. Anthony, Frederick Douglass, all the great social movements, when you lose the ballot box, you turn to the Constitution. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. I think this is why there's a, a center, a building in Philadelphia, a block from Independence Hall where Jeff works, where they have a center for this Constitution. Um, my only critique is the Constitution doesn't mean whatever you want it to mean. And as an originalist and as a textualist, as a federalist, I do believe the Constitution has an ascertainable meaning. It, it, indeed, it does. Um, uh, so, so if you are seeking to rely on the spending principle in Sibelius, um, you should at least agree it's right. Um, if you're a lawyer, uh, uh, perhaps you can use whatever arguments are at your disposal. Um, but in terms of scholars, if they want to actually argue that professors, I'm sorry, argue that principles were used, you should probably agree it's right. There are a lot of doctrines which I don't agree with. I'll give you an example. Um, there are proposals for a nationwide concealed carry law, right? The Supreme Court long ago held that firearms are interstate commerce. And under that principle, you can have an, a national firearm policy for concealed carry. I think that case was wrongly decided. And I don't think the Commerce Clause justifies a national carry law. I would like a national carry law. I think under Section 5, you have some other arguments. But I wouldn't support a concealed carry law under the Commerce Clause. I think the doctrine is, is fundamentally flawed. Um, I, I do think we have a, a duty to express what I've written as constitutional consistency, say that if there are principles that we disagree with, uh, I mean, if you're, if you're an advocate, you can rely on whatever you want, but I do think scholars should uh, try to stick to their guns. Thanks uh, so much for that. Uh, Peter, um, one issue where you have argued that uh, we should be Federalists is on the issue of minimum wages. And in the 2016 election, several states adopted new minimum wages. Tell us about those laws that were adopted, how they might be challenged, and how federalism principles can help protect them. Uh, gosh, I think that one's so easy. <laughs> the the uh, question, uh, if there's some kind of an argument that somebody's making that having a uh, higher uh, minimum wage in a, in a state than we have at the federal level uh, 
because uh, there's a conflict uh, involved in some way uh, or, or that there's the, the field is completely covered, uh, which would be the relevant uh, ideas, uh, the, it's quite clear uh, that, that um, and I don't even know why I need to say this, but I will, uh, the, you have a $7.25, I mean, the numbers don't ma matter because the, it's the principle, but in, in any case, uh, the it, it the idea of it uh, by definition uh, isn't anything that says this is a cap, um, and uh, so I I suppose people will argue uh, that the fifteen dollars or whatever the number is 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 somehow uh, in a collision with federal policy, but I I uh, really have trouble even uh, thinking that that's a serious argument. Somebody else probably does. So, Josh, what would the argument be? You could challenge these minimum wages as a violation of substantive due process, as they were challenged during the Lochner we are, era? We, Atkins versus Children's Hospital. It's got to be pretty close by. <laughs> <laughs> well, seriously, what would, the, what would the challenges be? And more broadly, conservatives are not uniformly Jeffersonian. Many are Hamiltonian. And indeed, Rush Limbaugh criticized the uh, cast of uh, Hamilton for assuming that he led to liberal results, noting that uh, uh, tr tr President Trump the, was a large electric, The Electoral College was, was his idea. Absolutely. I, 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 I heard Limbaugh segment that. So what, so what would a nationalist Hamiltonian uh, Republican do to challenge these minimum wage laws of the state? Well, well, decades ago, right here in the District of Columbia, we had a case called Atkins versus Children's Hospital where the court struck down a minimum wage as a violation of the liberty of contract doctrine, the idea that people have the right to negotiate their own wages and a federal cap abrogates that individual freedom. Um, uh, these cases were repudiated many decades ago, and uh, I don't think there's a single justice in the court willing to entertain those sorts of arguments. Even Justice Thomas has uh, uh, joined the Lochner phobia. Uh, forget Justice Breyer. If you say, you know, it's like Voldemort from you can't even say the name. It's like, he who, should, <laughs> he who should not, shall not be named for Justice Breyer. Um, uh, uh, but the Lochner case certainly has gotten a bad rap. Uh, I think Peter's right. The, the federalism argument about serving as a cap I don't think goes too far, and I, I, you know, if a state, to quote your mentor, Justice Brandeis, if a state wants to experiment with a higher minimum wage, I see no principle stopping them from doing so. And if people want to flood that jurisdiction and and, and take advantage of that wage, then that that will be what what, what people vote with their feet. Okay, I'm going to put uh, a t a two more particular issues on the table in a moment: climate change and healthcare. But Peter, you you challenge us to step back. Um, there is, as you've written so eloquently, a history of states' rights being invoked to threaten the rights of racial minorities, to resist uh, integration orders by the Supreme Court, and therefore it's had an ambivalent uh, role in the liberal pantheon for much of the post-war era. How to reconcile that history with the uh, embrace of progressive federalism, and should progressives be wary about throwing their lot in entirely with the Tenth Amendment? The, the uh, you, you kind of th threw me a curve in the sense that uh, I think that uh, whatever uh, is argued uh, in terms of, of the Tenth Amendment or for that matter the spending clause in, in, in relation uh, uh, to the sanctuary cities uh, is uh, – that, that has boundaries uh, and it is applying uh, precedents that exist. Uh, 
we may have a, a difference of opinion about uh, whether as a lawyer we can use uh, some tool that a actually we, we disagree with at, uh, at a level of, uh, of uh, higher principle. Um, but in terms of uh, the question of, of race and, and the relationship of, of, uh, to the uh, federal government and the question of so-called states' rights, uh, that's a very big issue. And uh, we need to understand uh, for just a minute or two uh, what the arc of, of that uh, experience is. Uh, not only did we start uh, as a country uh, with that beautiful idea of Justice uh, Kennedy of the split atom, uh, but of course we did it in a way uh, and, and with, with real hypocrisy on the part of Jefferson and, and many others uh, to talk about, about uh, defending uh, localities and doing things from the bottom up which is a strong principle uh, in, with the proper application. Um, and so uh, it, was, it was done to protect slavery, as we know. Uh, making it a little bit broader uh, until the, the Civil, Civil War, uh, the, the general feeling, which was not totally about race, uh, was that the, eighth, uh, the first eight amendments uh, didn't need to have anything to do with the states because we could trust the states. And that's partly a Southern thing, but it it's actually was larger. Uh, uh, and then we, we fought a, a, a civil war uh, in order for, for the, the most important kind of subject that it could be, but it, of course uh, people died and that, absolutely terrible. And so we started, people woke up and said we needed something, namely the 14th, 15th, 13th, 14th, and 15th uh, amend, amendments. And for a period of time, we had a different, we had a different uh, splitting of that atom. It was split in a different place. Uh, and and uh, until the end of Reconstruction, um, we had a stronger national policy with regard to race. And, and then uh, it began to fall apart. Uh, the case of, of uh, the United States against Cruikshank and, and, and uh, the Colfax massacre, a terrible tragedy uh, because of walking away from a national responsibility in order to protect the people who got murdered in that, in that massacre. Uh, and then for a long period of time, as we know, uh, Jim Crow, um, the, in fact, in terms of economic th things, what we did is to make it uh, completely, we privatized uh, things and, and uh, you couldn't get uh, regulation upheld at, either at the national level or at the, at the state level, as, as we know. Uh, and then uh, we, we came around to the, to the second reconstruction. Uh, and the great uh, statutes of 1964, 65, and 68, uh, and, and we were again uh, splitting that atom over on the side of national policy in order to, to uh, engage in, in appropriate policies about race. And uh, I'm deeply, deeply concerned uh, that we're at now uh, heading toward the end of the second reconstruction because what's happened with Shelby County uh, and with the voter suppression laws uh, and mass incarceration and the uh, uh, felons losing their voting, uh, we're, we're in, in a situation where uh, these things, 
de facto anyway, uh, turn out to uh, a weakening of the, of the federal role and a strengthening uh, in, in a variety of ways at, at the state uh, role. So that's the larger, fr uh, it, it, thank you for letting me say that, uh, that's the larger frame of this conversation. Well, that was eloquently said. And Josh, what is your response to Peter's uh, uh, statement that over the course of American history, federal power has been necessary to protect minority rights, that the recent uh, decisions involving voting rights and prisons that weaken that federal enforcement may threaten equality? And then maybe I'll just ask you what you think of the new dispute about Title Nine and the Trump administration's decision to revoke the Obama administration's interpretation of it with regard to transgender bathrooms. Okay. Uh, and I'm glad Peter mentioned Crookshank. For those of you who don't know, this was a great case involving the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And actually, the issue there is whether the Privileges or Immunities Clause considers a right to bear arms. And the court held that it did not include a right to bear arms. Uh, unfortunately, McDonald v. Chicago, Justice Thomas said that case was wrong. And the Privileges or Immunities Clause does engage a right to bear arms. Uh, I'll, I'll move next to the, the, the Title IX case, because that's a fairly timely issue. Um, Title IX was a law enacted in 1972-73. I might be off on the year. And it basically says in educational environments, schools can't discriminate on the basis of sex. Um, and, and, and perhaps in 1973, one would have thought the word sex had a fairly discreet meaning. Maybe not. Maybe yes. Uh, but during the Obama administration, in a series of letters issued by the Department of Education, so-called Dear Colleague Letters, the agency said, we will now interpret the word sex in Title IX to include uh, a gender identity. So in other words, you can no longer restrict a student's bathroom access based on the uh, birth certificate uh, 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 sex, but based on how the student uh, uh, identifies. Um, this policy was challenged uh, when a school district in uh, Gloucester County, Virginia, denied access to a student named Gigi, using initials because the student's a minor. Um, and this case is sitting at the doorsteps of the Supreme Court as we speak. Um, last night uh, uh, at around 7.30 p.m., the, uh, Obama, Obama, <laughs> the Trump administration withdrew the old Dear Colleague letter and said we will no longer reply in it. Concurrently with that decision, the acting, I'm sorry, the deputy solicitor general, Ed Needler, sent a letter to the Supreme Court saying, hey, uh, show this to the justices. Uh, what happens next is complicated. Uh, what I expect to happen is that the justices will ask for supplemental briefing, and they'll say, hey, what's the effect of this order? And at that point, there are a couple options. The first option is the court can dig the case, what's dig? Dismiss as improvidently granted. Why may they do that? The Fourth Circuit decision was based entirely on what's known as the Auer Doctrine, A-U-E-R, the idea that we need to defer to these agency letters, these dear colleague letters. Um, that basis is gone, so the Fourth Circuit's decision has no merit once this letter is withdrawn. Uh, the second basis is related is to vacate and remand the lower court opinion. Uh, if you dig it, you simply dismiss the case, we leave the Fourth Circuit decision in its place. Uh, if you vacate and remand, um, at that point, you're basically nullifying the Fourth Circuit decision and asking them to take a fresh look at it. There's a third option, which the ACLU hopes for the most, is to go ahead and argue the damn case. Uh, there's still a statutory basis of whether the best way of reading Title IX is to actually embrace transgender rights. Um, uh, but in this time, you may actually have the DOJ on the opposite side of the ACLU, whereas before they were on the same side as the ACLU. 
Um, so there's a lot of movement in this case that can happen uh, and with respect to how they deal with these issues. But one aspect to, to, to loop it back into federalism, uh, the letter that the uh, Trump administration issued said we have respect for federalism and we will allow local states to craft their own solutions. And this is actually your exact question. What happens when you have a local state like North Carolina that actually enacted a law saying that you have to uh, uh, restrict bathroom access based on a person's birth certificate? You can't base it on any professed identity. Um, so in that case, to, to, to Peter's point before, federalism does have the effect of perhaps not providing the same level of rights as the federal government. Um, and my response to that would be, uh, well, he's right. And uh, in that case, if Congress wants to provide protections to LGBT students, they are free to enact such a statute. Uh, uh, I think it's problematic when you try to read a 40-year-old statute to embrace a concept that frankly didn't exist at the time. Uh, we can be originalists for statutes also, and statutes have a fixed meaning. They're not alive. Uh, and, and even more than the Constitution, you can amend a statute very easily with a simple majority, a lot easier than amending the Constitution. Uh, so if I had to make a prediction, the court will dump this case, punt on it, remand the decision, and, and, and deal with more pressing issues coming up this term. Thanks for that great description, Peter. Assuming the case does not, the, assuming the court does not dump the case and hears it on the merits, mm -hmm. should it interpret Title IX to ban transgender discrimination? Uh, or do you believe that states should be allowed to be laboratories of democracy and reach their own decisions? I, I think the statute encompasses uh, the transgender uh, bathroom uh, question. Uh, I think Justice Scalia would have been uh, maybe not in terms of, I don't know, about the outcome, but certainly the idea that the text is, is what's the most important thing. And uh, it, it, this is certainly not uh, the, the first time we could give a lot of examples uh, on uh, antitrust laws that are uh, a, a century or more old and, and where, uh, of course, uh, the meanings change uh, over a period of time and because n uh, new things happen. Uh, and. Uh, in a way, uh, when we see in constitutional matters uh, and, and the discussion about being an originalist and, and look at all of the things that we have, uh, LGBT, but race, gender, large uh, uh, subjects that we have where uh, the court uh, essentially explicitly says uh, we, in effect, we would have done a different thing over a period of time, and many states have changed their approach to it. The, the public has changed its 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 uh, uh, view, and and therefore we come to a different position. Um, the 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 uh, the public the the actual uh, ex experience and precedence in those areas uh, is really needs to be. A, in our conversation when we're talking about what our approach to, to interpretation is. And similarly here, uh, I think that the uh, uh, interpretation uh, in the guidance was correct, uh, not going beyond the statute. It was simply interpreting uh, the statute. Uh, and uh, I would, if uh, taking your uh, premise of, uh, about the, the case itself, I would say that it, it should be decided, uh, regardless of whether it was pulled away, because that's, that's a side question, uh, and uh, should uh, uphold the, the meaning uh, that protects those young people. Great. Okay, one more round and then closing statements. The question is, Josh, what is the biggest issue involving federalism that you think 
the Trump administration will confront over the next year beyond the ones we've discussed. You're coming to the Constitution Center on Monday to discuss the future of the Affordable Care Act. Listeners can hear that on our Live at America's Town Hall podcast. There are also going to be challenges over environmental regulation, where the administration has said it will roll back the Obama administration's national approach to climate change. Pick one big area and describe what the federalism issues will be and how they should be resolved. Um, uh, so we can talk about environmentalism. We haven't, we haven't mentioned that yet. Um, President Obama's uh, big environmental policy, it was not a statute, it was a policy uh, known as the Clean Power Plan. And we saw something similar to what we saw with the uh, Title IX issue. We're taking fairly old, decade-old statutes and imbuing into them meaning that has never been understood. And through the Clean Power Plan, the president now seeks to regulate vast swaths of uh, uh, the, the, the energy industry. Um, and, and this was done in a number of respects with international treaties, international agreements. Um, this, this was all done not through a statute but through notice and comment. And I think what we're going to see fairly soon and maybe as soon as Monday, uh, uh, the EPA will start issuing a series of regulations trying to undo those uh, 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 policy plans. And the argument will be that these are illegal. Um, leading the charge to challenge those will be the states. Um, under the precedent of Massachusetts versus EPA, states now have an asserted interest in climate change issues that can affect their physical sovereignty, their coastline. So uh, California can say because of climate change, we'll have erosion on the beaches in Malibu. And that, that's an injury to the state. And the Supreme Court, by a five to four vote, said, yes, you can. So I think that the Trump administration will be embroiled in challenges with the uh, uh, states over environmental matters uh, uh, extensively. And this will go on and on. Uh, one related matter uh, with respect to immigration is building the wall. Now, you may think that building the wall is a federal matter, but if you want to build a wall in Southern California, you have state administrative procedures you have to follow as well. You have state condemnation law you have to follow as well. So the odds that the land will actually be acquired, you have environmental impact statements, this thing, assuming it gets funded, which it won't, it will be held up in litigation for years. The wall will not be big. It will not be terrific. It will not be beautiful. It will be non-existent. Uh, thank you for those thoughts. Uh, Peter, uh, do you want to respond to Josh's thoughts about the future federalism challenges on climate change and uh, the wall? Or you can also add any other topics to the table. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to. Uh, I, I'm so I love that answer so much that I, I think I ought to quit right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, I want to talk about block grants, uh, because that, if you don't mind, that that is a, a tremendously uh, important uh, forthcoming uh, issue in federalism. Uh, it's also in healthcare, and it's also about poverty. Uh, so uh, it's uh, slightly sounds dry to say it's about federalism, but it is. Um, the Medicaid program, which uh, serves 70 million people in our country, uh, which is uh, four, spends 400 billion dollars a year, uh, with the, engaging another 200 billion dollars of state money. So it is cooperative federalism has been from the very beginning. Uh, the the uh, federal government sets out some criteria. Uh, it is an entitlement uh, for, even though that's an unple unpleasant or unpopular word, it's a fact that there is a legal right to get that health care. Uh, and uh, what is proposed really, uh, to some extent, uh, based on, on sheer ideology and somewhat is about 
very, very uh, hawkish uh, budget cutting uh, because that's big money. And uh, so what we're about to see, uh, it, it, it goes with the Affordable Care Act, and, and that has its own politics and so on. This is actually much bigger, as much as I would, of course, want to see the Affordable Care Act uh, kept uh, as it is and, and the coverage that people have. It's very important. But when, when we talk about block grants, what happens is that the federal um, the, fed, the federal requirements go away. And uh, we give a bunch of money to the state. Uh, and the, maybe the governor, uh, if he or she is from a certain party, says, gee, I like that money. And they won't be pushing me around. Uh, and of course, what also goes along with that is, therefore, uh, whoever within it uh, needed to be served uh, might not be served because there's no longer any legal right. The amount of money will be capped so that it may look pretty good the first year, but then after that it will gradually uh, have uh, lose, lose uh, power to inflation. Uh, and uh, we will have uh, people in our states uh, by the really the thousands or millions of people who uh, either don't have coverage for the last two months of the year, uh, they might be an expensive patient with a, with a serious uh, cancer, uh, and the money is not there to take care of them. I mean, th this is a terrible, terrible thing that uh, is, is on the verge of happening if, we, if it's not stopped. Uh, and uh, it is, uh, obviously we're talking about human lives, but uh, it is about the relationship between the federal government and the states and altering that uh, relationship in a way which is very, very damaging. Thank you so much for that, gentlemen. It is time for closing statements in this superb conversation. And my question is this. Josh, should conservatives and libertarians embrace principles of federalism? And why or why not? Should conservatives and libertarians embrace it? Absolutely. Why? Because it's in the Constitution. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's often a debate among scholars about motivated reasoning, right? Are we simply adopting principles because it yields results we like? And look, we're all guilty of that. Um, I think here there's a, this is the case where both the Constitution and my priors line up uh, fairly well. Um, Justice Kennedy's right. The founders split the atom of sovereignty when they created our republic. And ambition, as James Madison said, was meant to counteract ambition. And the ambition of California will counteract Trump. I think that's healthy. The ambition of Texas counteracted Obama. I think that was healthy. And the more checking that goes on, ultimately, uh, I think the closer we come to our constitutional form of governance. Um, my only sincere hope is that the, uh, uh, the ushering of the Elizabeth Warren presidency doesn't, doesn't make a lot of people become sudden cases of amnesia and, and forget these wonderful principles. But I will, I'll keep harping all along. So uh, I'm grateful for this chance, Jeff. This was a fun podcast. Peter, it was a pleasure. And I hope those of you listening at home, uh, assuming our republic is still standing in a week, uh, enjoy this as well. Thanks so much for that, Josh. Peter, last word to you. Should progressives embrace principles of federalism, and why or why not? They always have. Uh, it's, it's, part of, it's a fundamental part of, of our governance system. Um, it's not a question of whether we have federalism. Uh, the question is, 
what is the balance between federal and local? Uh, and and we uh, it differs uh, depending on what the subject matter is. We have a Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, we have various federal laws that people across uh, all partisan lines uh, uh, agree. Uh, and there are things uh, that we that we've always done uh, in in a local way. The education is largely a, a local and to some extent state endeavor. Uh, so it's a question about g getting that division right. That's what it's about. It's not being uh, liberal or or conservative, except there are differences uh, of opinion about that. Uh, I worked for Robert Kennedy, as you know. Uh, and uh, he was a, a person who uh, was a, a different kind of, of liberal or progressive uh, on just these subjects. On the one hand, he believed very strongly uh, in the uh, federal regulation where it was relevant, uh, whether it was about antitrust or uh, th those were days when the question of the environment was just coming into existence. but, but uh, at the same time, he believed very strongly that if this country was going to be as strong and, and uh, as, as uh, wonderful uh, a nation as it could be, it would, it would find ways to empower people in their neighborhoods and in their communities, and that that would build the kind of, of, of community and, and uh, civic engagement that, that we need to have, and that it's a combination. Because you have to have, and civil rights is, of course, uh, at the top of the list of those things that we have to have uh, with national rules, uh, but at the same time, n not to be uh, doing things uh, that get in the way of people building their own communities and, and getting the strength uh, that that, that uh, allows us to have. So. The question isn't whether liberals should be in favor of federalism. The question is getting the right federalism uh, for our country. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Peter Edelman and Josh Blackman, for an illuminating, substantive, and important conversation about the future of federalism. A last word to our great Georgetown Law students who are here in the audience. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and educate yourself about these crucial issues. They are important. Federalism can seem wonky. I teach all the fun stuff in the Bill of Rights, the 14th Amendment, the First Amendment, but you need to educate yourself about these doctrines, about conditional spending, about uh, the, uh, the 10th Amendment, because the future of the republic will be determined by it. And another thing you've heard tonight is the importance of hearing good arguments on both sides and separating your political from your constitutional views. Be open to the possibility that you embrace a constitutional principle that will sometimes clash with your policy views, but you're willing to embrace it because you believe that the Constitution requires it. You are models of engaged citizens. We, the people, listeners, you are too. And now what I want you to do, law students across the country, invite we, the people, to visit your law schools so we can do live podcasts on these great events, bringing together phenomenal debaters from the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society to educate ourselves and America about the U.S. Constitution. Ladies and gentlemen here at Georgetown, please join me in thanking Josh Blackman and Peter Edelman. Thank you so much. Today's show was edited by Jason Gregory and produced by yours truly, Nicandro Yanachi. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. 
Special thanks to Clifton Fells and the Georgetown chapters of the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society for their partnership in designing and producing a great event. As Jeff suggested at the end of the show, please, law students of America, invite We the People to record a show at your school. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our new email roundup of constitutional news and debate, at bit.ly slash constitutionweekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall, on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people like you around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the Constitution Center, I'm Nikandra Yanachi.